Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. And we are here with you putting this whole thing together. Yeah, we wanted to um, talk a little bit about our summers and what's been going on. So Randy, we'll start with you. You are out at your new property and you are um, making an oasis out there. (laughs) Yeah, well, one of the things that oasis needs is water. Yeah. (laughs) And so (laughs) we're working on that. Uh, We are uh, in the middle of... uh, uh, well, Edith and I look at sort of the long story is this. We, uh, our well started going out, and so we had to drill another well. The well that, that was here when we uh, came started going out. And so we, we hired someone to drill another well, um, and then uh, we went down 160 feet. He had only estimated it at 120. So that cost us a lot more than we thought, but then it only produced a half gallon a minute, which is not much at all. And then, so we had to decide, well, do we call the whole thing off? No, we can't. We got to have water. So we're going to drill a second well. So we went to another part of the property and we drilled a second well. Um, At 100 feet, uh, he he ended up uh, finding really, really good water, but not much water. So, uh, and we had both doused for it, you know, the how you use the sticks to douse uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, and, but, but I can't tell how much water is, there is or how far down it is. I can only tell that there's water under there. And so he did find it. And, um, and so that meant we were going to have to buy a big reserve tank because at two gallons a minute, your pump would just be working all the time. So, so what you want to do is fill up your reserve tank at nighttime and then the pump can stop working. So then we purchased a 2,500 gallon reserve tank. So then the next thing was to, uh, you have to build a well house because there has to be electricity brought out. We looked into solar, but it was just too cost prohibitive. Mm. And so um, uh, and so we have to build a well house so that the filters and the pumps and everything have a place to be protected. And so Edith and I set about building a well house from scratch and uh, like an eight by eight well house. The problem was, is that right when I got started is when the fires began. And so we couldn't be out in the, because of the particulate matter, breathing all that smoke in. And, uh, and so that put a stop. And then we got rain for a week, which was nice because it cleared out the particulate matter, <laughs> but, uh, but, but we couldn't really work out there. And so then the last uh, week, basically Edith and I have been working like crazy to get our uh, well house to the point because I had a, a volunteer, uh, actually you know, two volunteers, two friends who came down from Whidbey Island, Washington, and uh, one is an electrician, and he's wiring the whole thing up for us, and they're actually here right now, and that meant digging trenches and all the stuff, which we're kind of still in the middle of, so I'll go, I'll leave this podcast, and I'll go out to digging trenches some more, and, wow. uh, and then he's getting that all set up. And, uh, and then it takes, then the water people will come in and then put in the water lines and the, you know, the pumps and the filters and all that kind of stuff, whatever's needed. And, and so we're not there yet. There's a lot involved in uh, setting a well up. <laughs> wow. Yeah, this has been quite uh, an undertaking on your part. And not just, I mean, you built that well house physically. You framed it and built it right from scratch. You didn't buy like a barn kit from Home Depot or something. 
No, but I, I'll probably rethink that next time. <laughs> <laughs> and did you, did, so did you like rent a trencher or how did the trenches come about? Yeah, so I did rent a trencher, but that was a waste of time. Yeah, that <laughs> <It> was either. <laughs> yeah, you know, these uh, sort of uh, you know gas-propelled trenchers. That was pretty much a waste of time because, you know, I needed to be twenty-four inches down, and uh, at about twelve to sixteen inches, they just they just stalling out. And so you only can take out like eight, 10 inches at a time. And then you have to go back and do it again. And then you have to do it again. And, and it was just a day of frustration, um, you know, 200 bucks down the drain basically. And so I took that back. I was going to rent it for two days. I took it back. And then I'm, I'm out there now with my, um, my backhoe on my tractor and I'm having to basically do the whole thing, uh, with that. I should have just done that to begin with, but, uh, Oh man, uh, I thought it might be easier the other way. So yeah, and and then they don't, you know, there's a lot of places where it connects where you can't get the tractor in. So we're having to dig those by hand, and uh, yeah, so it's a you know a lot of work doing uh, all this kind of stuff. I can see why people get paid so much for it now. Yeah, right. I actually love that little tractor you have. I'm I've seen you do so many different things with it, whether it was uh, putting things on and moving them around the property, or pulling things, or <laughs> Uh, digging yeah, up stumps. I mean, oh I, that thing is very versatile. Well, the reason yeah. I wanted to ask about uh, the well, not just because uh, as a farmer, you need water, but um, you did a, a fundraising campaign and people were quite uh, generous and helpful to help you get the money that you needed for the well. And so I thought people would just be interested to hear how it's going. But um, yeah. one of the things- yeah, they were so so generous it was great yeah and one of the things that was interesting to watch during that was to your former students have really sort of consolidated uh the ability for whether it's uh, you know an email to go out or for people to give in a central location and they've just done such an amazing job i mean what is what has happened at least from where i sit is that the availability of information about Elahe and about your ministry, about the future uh, to restart uh, the education center and so many other things has just this great presence and allows you to be able to share stuff on Facebook and uh, for people to get these email updates. I think that this year has been a really good for people to be able to find out what you and Edith are up to and how to participate with you. Yeah, so Erna is uh, really, uh, Erna Kim Hackett is uh, a, a, um, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, <laughs> she, has her, she has her own organization um, for women of color called Liberated Together. Uh, and that's a great site for people to go visit. Uh, and then Joshua very much balances her out. He's very creative and very... Um, oh, what's the word? Uh, kind of like a still pond, you know? Yeah, uh, he's very calming, oh. and so it's a great balance. Those two have sort of taken the helm, and uh, and just done incredible things for for Elahe, the fundraising campaign, uh, the Go, uh, the GoFundMe site, the Resurrect yep. Elahe, um, the uh, the 
um, there's a, uh, we now have a couple interns that are working like five hours a week and we have some volunteers that are doing stuff, doing grant writing and other things. And so it's some administrative work and, uh, this is all them. And, and then, uh, this was kind of Erna's idea. It was a, a number of streams kind of about doing this Ayla Hay cohort. So on in, uh, indigenizing, um, your future, decolonizing and indigenizing your future. And then uh, Edith's doing one, and this was her idea. It's uh, called uh, Indigenizing with Badass Grandma. So her and yeah. Lenore Three Stars, who's on our uh, board, uh, are the badass grandmas. And then they've invited several other guest grandmas, uh, including Fern Cloud, who's one of our another one of our board members, a Dakota woman. Um, uh, Lenore's uh, Lakota. But uh, yeah, and so it sort of breathed new life, you know, um, and we have, you know, uh, uh, board members who are excited. We have uh, Erna and Joshua who are sort of leading the way on this thing. And, and uh, you know, because it does get tiring. I mean, we've, we've had um, kind of carried the burden of this thing for so long. At different times, we've had great boards and at different times we've We've basically had no participation, mm-hmm. and um, right now we are in an incredible season of building sort of the the dream that I've carried really since 1998. Um, so it, we're we're watching it fulfilled here in front of us, and and you know we recognize that without other people's help, um, including. Uh, Erna and Joshua, but all the, you know, right now we have um, uh, some people here and I don't know if they'd want me to say their names, but, you know, shout out to Whidbey Island. Uh, You know, you've supplied some volunteers to come help and there are other people, the people who have given and supported us all these years and, and the new people who are coming on board and the young people and uh, Brandy Miller, uh, whose podcast is, uh, um, uh, re- reclaiming my theology. And yeah. So I did a podcast not long ago and, and she has been a real good supporter, bringing groups out, college students to help. And wow. there's just been so many people over the years that have sort of supported this vision. And now we're seeing it really happen the way that we've always wanted it to happen. So we're just really excited. That is and, and it gets, it gets new life to us. You know, it, it gets, uh, it, the the new uh the new life is sort of like getting an infusion of uh, you know yeah. uh yeah yeah and you had so many people want to be a part of this learning cohort that you actually had to create a waiting list you had you had to turn people away oh my gosh and that was the hardest thing in the world for me to do um you know ideally we we set the thing up and we were like you know 14 people um maybe 16 at the very most and then we've had like 25 people apply and every single one of them, you know, I want to do something with, but I only have so much time. Right. So, so we've limited it to 16 and, uh, and I, I'm hoping that those who didn't get a chance will, you know, uh, come out for the next time, next cohort we do. So, and, and then the, the, the badass grandma's cohort has like 21 people. Oh yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a six week thing. Yeah, but um, but the um, the you know ours ours is more like a we're trying to do more like a mentorship and that's an eight month uh, thing and 
you know, all the money from this, uh, you know, of course, Edith and I both, um, you know, our, our annual salary is a dollar each. That's what we make out of Elahay. So, oh. so the money that goes to Elahay, you, you know, we're basically volunteers too. Huh. Um, the money that goes to Elahay, you didn't know that? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. So yeah, that's in the budget, you know, a dollar each. I'm not sure we actually get paid every year on that or not, but, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, all the money from these cohorts is then going into helping build the property up and creating this, this you know, Elahay Indigenous awesome. Center for Earth Justice, Elahay Farm and Seeds, Elahay Learning Center, you know, all of this. So. Randy, that's incredible. And I'm so happy for you that you're on this new property, that you have this community around you, that you're getting the response that you're looking for and that, uh, that you have an infusion of sort of new energy. It makes me so happy because, uh, remind me how much acres you have now. Just about 10. 10. Yeah. So more than double what you had, uh, previously when you were down in the Newbury area, that is just wonderful, man. I am excited. I haven't been able to go out and uh, visit you yet Uh, to see the property. Um, We've been in very strict quarantine here, as I know you have to protect your health as well. And so I cannot, by the way, it's been very difficult to know that you were making, you know, seven or eight trips um, from one part of the state and that you've needed help building and trenching and to not be able to come out and help. But how many? You made nine, nine trips all together. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Because there is the U-Haul, way. U-Haul truck six times, and then oh. there were three other trips. Yeah. I mentioned on our last episode that I love helping people move, and it was just just felt completely debilitated to not be able to do that. But I'm so happy for you that you're out there now, and that things are coming together. Hey, I, I had two things I wanted to uh, tell you. <clears throat> oh, that, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Since we're doing Ayla Hay, let's just send it, people to Aylahay.org. E-L-O-H-E-H dot org. Uh, if you want to know more about, you know, the vision and what we're doing. So Yeah, for sure. And we also want to say welcome to our new listeners. Uh, we picked up in July and August a number, a significant number of new uh, likes on Facebook new listeners on the podcast stream, and a couple new Patreons. So we want to say welcome to everybody and thank you to our Patreon supporters who continue to support uh, this uh, conversation starter. And we are very grateful, but I just, I'm excited. So we wanted to say welcome to new listeners. And uh, Randy and I are actually going to be recording on Fridays on a fairly regular basis going forward. So please let us know what topics you would like us to address, you can email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. You can comment on the Facebook page. Uh, Let us know what you want us to talk about. You can actually even comment in your show notes um, below if you're on iTunes. I don't know if Stitcher has the ability to leave feedback. I'll have to look into that. But uh, yeah, definitely let us know how you are finding us and what you want us to talk about. Randy, two things I wanted to talk to you about. I know that because of your um, profession as an educator, that you have done a lot of different um, engagements and much of it has moved online. And I think you're entirely online now. 
Yep. But as a local pastor, this has been a very big change for me to move. Yeah, what's it like? Oh, yeah, that's kind weird. of, you know, yeah, I bet. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this, there's two things that I actually wanted to tell you about just because of conversations we've had in the past. Two themes that I think you might have something to comment on. Uh, the first is that um, I feel like we had a built-in advantage here at, at our my congregation in that, you know, we had been practicing for almost three years being a conversational community. We're very interactive. You know, we sit in the round with an open center. There's large parts of our gatherings are um, just for breakout groups where people turn their chairs and have smaller conversations. So we've been practicing that. Moving online in that sense was very easy because um, you and I already Zoom for these podcasts. And so I already had the Zoom technology up and running. And um, because of being a professor for the year as a professor and then you being a professor, we both are you know, really comfortable working with Zoom and sort of putting that whole thing together. So my congregation was, it was easy to transition them to uh, being a Zoom for our online gatherings and getting everybody up to speed and then, and then facilitating that well and continuing our style of being conversational and interactive. And that part has been really easy. But as I have talked with other ministers from all around the country, you know, they're really frustrated. <clears throat> so what really? most of them, yeah, what most of them have done is they've either, the first group sort of looked at online as a short-term fix until they can get back to normal. And actually oh, wow. all around the country, and except for Oregon, but in many places around the country, including even just in California, um, churches have gone back to meeting physically together. And so, you know, they may have to limit their gathering to 50, depending on state laws, or they may have to do multiple services to get everybody in. But what's interesting there for me is that previously, I did not hear a lot of conversation about it, the embodied nature of spirituality and religion. Mm -hmm. I actually think that what has happened in 2020 has actually caused many people who previously didn't value or understand how important it is to be connected to, to one another in that way. And it brought a new appreciation for that. Um, and that just got me thinking about conversations you and I have had about people sitting around, whether it's a fire together or around the table together, the way that you structure your classroom physically mm -hmm. uh, often will move desks, but just the physicality of what we are missing has brought to many people a renewed sense of um, it's really important to be together and who you are physically present to and with really determines in a large way the experience that you have. Absolutely. It's, it's Let me important. just interrupt for a second. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've always said that pedagogy is more important than content. So, yeah, people don't realize that. But, you know, think about like the deepest values and worldview and everything we have. Most of that is caught 
C-A-U-G-H-T. It's yeah. caught, not taught. Mm. And in the, it's this sort of hidden message that is much more powerful than what we're saying. Because we know from all the studies that were done, you know, you only retain like, you know, 7% of what was said and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like when you hear a sermon, you know. But but what's happening is that you you are communicating no matter what you do. And you're communicating with your body, with your eyes, with your with your smile or not smile or somberness or and and all of that, how you structure the room has to do with how you think about human people. You know, do you uh, think that you are the sage on stage? Then you have everybody facing you. Yep. Or if you're in the church, you know, well, it's like, you know, I'm I'm God's person, you know, I mean, God's going to speak through me and you all get to look at the back of each other's heads. Right. So that. To me, it's it's. I've learned over time. I think, and in, in listening to wise teachers like Miles Horton and Paulo Freire and others, that this pedagogy um, either frees you, uh, and and uh, and and you become something more than what you were while you're sitting there, or it, like Freire says in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, it oppresses you and you become less of a person that you were meant to be. And so, as leaders, we have that obligation to communicate. The dignity to give the the one of our native values is to give voice to everyone so that there's dignity, shared dignity, you know. So anyway, I just want to mention that now, and I agree a hundred percent in terms of embodiment. Yeah, yeah. People are going, oh, now I miss people. I miss I miss being around people. I miss. We do also very much so. But what I had hoped people would get out of it as well is I talk about the community of creation, right? Yeah. So people like Emil Bruner and, you know, I was just reading, um, uh, soon, uh, rereading Sun Chan Ra and Mark Charles's book, uh, um, Unsettling Truths, I think it was called or something like that. It was, uh, it's about doctrine of discovery and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, it, it is true. They talk about community, and I really like that. I, 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 but they're talking about, they're quoting Bruner and others. It's a community of people. Mm. But we are part of a much larger community. We've got to get past this Western construct that it's only people that matter. Mm-hmm. We are not alone, no matter who you are with. Uh, God has created uh, mm-hmm. all of nature out there to to commune with us, and we need to begin to listen to to nature as the bird people, as the, the squirrel people, as the deer people, as the insect people, as the, you know, et cetera, because they have a whole lot to teach us. And so to me, this, this time of COVID is a time, you know, animals really can't get it. You know, they can give it to you. Uh, and this is, you know, zoonosis is what they call it, where it transfers from an animal species to a human species. But you're probably not going to be out, you know, uh, spending that much time close to a bat uh, while you're out. Um, but uh, you might be able to be out in the middle of the trees in the forest, out near a stream, uh, appreciate water, and what does water have to teach you? All of these kinds of things. So so this big community that we are um, put on this planet to learn from and to keep in balance, this is what my greatest hope has been during this COVID time is that people would reconnect. So Sorry to interrupt and no, reject no. all that, but uh, Randy, that was that was great. That was really you've actually given me something uh, to think about. 
to go even further with this, um, which actually is the second group that I wanted to tell you about, which I thought you'd find interesting, is that I've actually become sympathetic with people who want to get back together. Uh, I know that there's been a lot of bad mouthing and um, scoffing at this this deep desire or this agitation that you see of people really wanting to go uh, get back together, whether it's in their church communities or schools or whatever it is. But I've actually become sort of sympathetic with them because um, there's a large group. I, I would say the vast majority of churches, what they have gone to doing after the first couple weeks of quarantine is that they started pre-recording their segments and then editing them together like a TV show. And then they just broadcast it on Sunday mornings when normally it would be church. So it's not a live engagement. Um, it's, it's pre-recorded and then they just broadcast on Sunday morning, but they find it so deeply unsatisfying that uh, many people say, well, you know, like I can watch that anytime or, you know, there are better produced programs. And so it's not compelling and so they're saying, well, we, you know, we got to get back together. And so I've actually, you know, sort of softened towards people. At first, I was really annoyed. Like, don't you get it? We can't get back together. Knock it off. This isn't religious persecution, right? This is for your own good. But the long- You're talking about the 10 churches that are suing the state of Oregon, right? Yes. Yeah. There are churches suing the state. Yeah. But- I actually, the more pastors I talk to, the more I sort of get it because what they're realizing is, like you said, the content isn't compelling. And so pre-recording sermons and songs and prayers and splicing it together uh, through an editor and then broadcasting it, it's no good. It doesn't do anything for anybody. And it's just- offer a different perspective? Yes. (laughs) Uh, so I would say two things. One, this is a time for them to realize that the stuff they've been putting out is maybe superficial and lacks the energy of the spirit. And, uh, and that when it's revealed on camera, um, and there's not the pressure of the live person that it actually uh, comes up wanting. Yeah. And that there's, that this should then, uh, um, it begs a question like, well, what are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. What are we doing as a church that we need to rethink, you know? Yeah, you're just going to, you know, kind of paste and cut the things that you do and expect people to, to be energized by that. Well, maybe that's not really what worship is. Right. And so, um, so there's that. The second thing I would say the component of this is that there um, this idea that you can just throw something on the screen and have people watch it uh, reflects the fact that they don't value the interaction between people that we were talking about uh, mm-hmm. that they don't value the synergy that's created when people get together and they and everybody has a voice and that sort of thing so to me what this would speak to is like stop do trying to put on a um, a television program, mm-hmm. stop doing the can services, you know, and now all of a sudden you have uh, what we would call like member home groups. Yeah. You know, so now you can have, you know, 
10, 15 people in the Zooms and home groups all over the place. And then you maybe you have one kind of a thing together, whatever. I don't know. But this is where people then um, can actually get to know one another and get to share with one another and and see how the spirit reveals uh, the spirit self to one another. And so, yeah, this this to me is just, again, um, you know, uh, asking the church to use the creativity that the creator has given them uh, rather than to just keep thinking in the same DNA or the same box. So, yeah, anyway, that's. Yeah. So I, I don't feel sorry for them. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the two things I think. Yeah, good. Well, because they, they're, they're putting God in this box and they're saying, you know, this is how we have to do it and you won't let us do it. You know, it's like, come on, people grow up, Mm. you know, get uh, some creativity, get a life, get a concern about where people are really at and not just doing your program. Mm. Here's the two things I think will come out of this uh, in 2021 and beyond is for ministers, I think that there might be a realization that the content and the liturgy were never that compelling. And that's not why anyone came anyway. And that it's been exposed that what really matters to people and what really draws them is connecting with one another it was never the stage show. Yeah. But, and you've done a great job of modeling that with your uh, church 2.0. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. I really think, well, here's my second thing. I would not be surprised at all that when the vaccine comes out and when we get to, you know, a level where uh, they start letting us meet again, I would not be surprised at all if church attendance is down more than 50% across the country, because after nine months, a year, people have figured out, I don't really need it. It's, it's, it's not as important as I thought it was. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if it, if this deeply impacts uh, church attendance, which is why church 2.0 or interactive church, I think might be the future because Smaller congregations, if you don't have what it takes to pull off the big stage show, this is a model that actually says, well, look, if there's only going to be 50 of us, then who's in the room really matters. Let's facilitate this in a way that brings out everybody's insights, experiences, backgrounds, different um, contributions that they bring. I don't, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if down the road, this model becomes, um, takes off because we cannot, I don't know that we'll ever get back to business as usual. Yeah. One, one thing is true is that people need to connect, right? Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I, I definitely don't take what I was saying about the whole community of creation as superseding the need for people to connect with each other mm-hmm. because that's absolutely necessary as well. But um, people need to connect because that is what the human spirit is about. How can we be uh, human without other humans? How can we be vulnerable, you know, when it's just ourselves? We, we, we have to be in, uh, in uh, communion, uh, interactive spaces, uh, interconnectivity with other people in order to become fully human. Yeah. And so uh, to, to be community and 
you know, that is in the DNA of everything in, in creation mm. from the smallest subatomic particles to the, the multiverse, everything relates to others. Uh, there's nothing singular in the whole multiverse. So, um, so that's, that's who we are as human beings. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, people, they don't need church to do that. Right. right. Uh, church is one particular way, but you know, they have other groups yeah. and meetings and, yeah. and, uh, and, and I'm thinking maybe what yours, what may happen as a result is that people will find other things that they got more interest in than church. And yeah. And so um, it's, it's in, in a way I, you know, I, I definitely don't want to sound like I'm callous, but uh, if that happens, it's the chickens have come home to roost, right? Yeah. I mean, we have played at being church for so long, and then people have finally woke up to it. Yeah. I read a book one time uh, called When Going to Church is Sin, and it really changed the way I <laughs> Is that book, st- by the way, is that book still in publication, or it's... I don't think so. But, a friend, uh, right? I, I think you might still be able to get it on Amazon. I'm not sure. But uh, for <laughs> a second there, I was thinking, that title sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wrote that for my 50th birthday. I, I uh, you know, I wanted to kind of uh, write a book about uh, mission on my 50th birthday because uh-huh. people are always telling me, you know, hey, I want to be a missionary. And I'm right. like, you know, people, there are so many things you need to know, you know. And so that's why I wrote that book, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Um, your book on um, living in color, uh, God's, is it called God's Dream? For um, embracing God's passion for ethnic diversity. Passion, okay. That, I know, gets a lot more, people reference that more than some of your other books, but I really liked when going to church is sin. Yeah, actually, um, you know, I think... And I might have mentioned this last year or something. The last year or two, Shalom in the Community Creation has gotten a whole new life. Yeah. And I'm always having people reference it. And, you know, someone, uh, if I say this, this is sound really kind of hinky, but, you know, someone the other day. But this is, you know, like this is the kind of positive feedback that authors (laughs) need to keep writing, right? Someone said you know, recommended my book, Shalom and the Community Creation. And it said, it's a deep read, but it changed my whole life. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff. It's like, wow, okay, hit a home run. That's what we want when we write, right? Yeah. Speaking of books, there's something I've been wanting to tell you. We so kind of wrote a book, right? We did write a book, yes. <laughs> and it We hurt. still got to figure out how to have a launch. I- I know we haven't had a book launch. The two places we were going to launch it got canceled when, when all of this started. Yeah, we, got, we definitely need to figure out how to promote that thing. But listen, there are people in their 20s and early 30s who have found our book and have read it during quarantine. And I have been getting some very, by the way, if anybody's listening, our book is called Decolonizing Evangelicalism, an 1159 conversation. So if if you want to look it up, you can get it through Whippenstock, Amazon. It's on Kindle now, by the way. That's cool. Yeah, that's pretty fun. Um, I've been getting some very interesting emails or direct messages on uh, Facebook Messenger of people who have read it. And it, there's, a, there's a theme emerging, Randy, 
So tell me about it. All right. So you and I um, encourage people to do some critical thinking. And one of the toolkits that we sort of help uh, make available to them comes from this thing called critical theory and specifically critical race theory. Well, young evangelicals of color are reading our book and are finding why have I never heard of this before? Or why is this new information to me? And so it turns out that in their environment, it is not welcomed and it is not um, embraced. So as they start down that journey, they're getting a lot of resistance and some warnings. Well, it turns out that at the very same time, as, uh, as our book has gone, uh, been, become available. Obviously, you have the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter movement really bringing uh, awareness to people of the racial issues in this country in a brand new way. And that this has become a cultural conversation across the board, makes the nightly news every evening, right? So what's happening is that many denominations, specifically conservative and evangelical, charismatic, that whole branch of Christianity, is really upset about critical race theory and is not just resistant to it, but it is actually quite vocally speaking against it. Somebody lifted up the curtain. (laughs) yes yes somebody lifted up the curtain curtain and they were found naked so uh you know i i I mean even the president himself is uh uh coming out against this and people who use this like howard zinn and others because they hate america right and uh so you know it's crazy yeah so i got this email from this young thinker And he said, "Um, I have a question. I'm a part of this message board, this chat room thing, right? Um, Group. It's a private group. And it's of, and it's big. It's a big group. But they're Christians who are against uh, critical race. And he said, why are you, to you and Randy, why are you the only people I've ever heard of who are for this. So he said specifically to me as a Christian minister, why are you the only Christian who speaks in favor of this? So we're having an interesting conversation right behind the scenes. And then he got me an invite to this group. Oh, wow. So I joined it three weeks ago and Randy, (laughs) I am getting an education. When When you are in rooms that normally you don't get invited into and you're uh-huh. listening into the behind the scenes conversations in the back rooms it is eye-opening what i am learning so well, tell us well there's two big things i have found and they're both really big problems so it turns out that the bible is used as you and I know, in very unhelpful ways to baptize the status quo and to defend the way that things are currently structured, that 
there's a way of using the Bible that says, don't go down this road. You will be straying from the path of truth and it will corrupt you and ruin your faith. Randy, I can't believe the amount of Bible verses that are thrown up against me and saying that what I'm saying can't be true because of 2 Corinthians 5, 6 or whatever the Bible verse is. But it's been, I've been collecting these Bible verses because it turns out that when people, this is my analogy, when people have a Bible verse that they've already plugged into a slot, then uh-huh. anything else that could be plugged into that same slot. So for instance, an understanding of race or of reconciliation or of forgiveness, right? Whatever it is, generational sin, it doesn't matter what it is. But if you already have a Bible verse that's plugged into that slot, anything else that potentially could go in that slot is not just seen as competition, but actually as a threat that needs to be combated and destroyed. So it's not just it's not just an alternative. It actually is a threat that needs to be neutralized. And so the Bible is used as a I don't know. I don't want to use violent language, but, you know, I've heard a club is an analogy that people have used. But, Randy, I I honestly am stunned. I am truly stunned at how people will not hear a new truth or a different perspective by throwing up a Bible verse and thinking that that settles the issue. Yeah. Well, before you go to your second issue, I just want to mention that, you know, uh, having um, battled this, a similar battle with uh, um, our uh, indigenous practices and using those in the church, you know, we battled this all the time. And uh, the, the scripture that constantly that people use against us was second Corinthians five seventeen. Um, so it, it, uh, let's see if I can recall, see, so it's, uh, uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, old things have passed away. Now they're, they want to say old things are our traditional indigenous practices, right? Uh, and so old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become white. I mean, new, uh, <laughs> And, and that's the club that was constantly used during those early years and probably still is being used against anything uh, traditional Native American. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I've, I have seen that one used many times. But it, it's not just that one, but that is a very, I would say 80% of the arguments against an address of race are based on that one verse. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, it's so wild. Here's the other thing that I've learned, which is when the current system benefits you in some way, it is amazing if you don't want to do something, how nearly any excuse is good enough not to do it. So like, I've been joking with my wife, you know, if somebody invites you out for dinner and you don't want to have dinner, literally anything is a good excuse not to do it. I have to wash my hair. My dog's not feeling well. Uh, I, you know, I already have plans. It doesn't matter if you don't want to do something, anything is an acceptable reason not to do it. I am hearing the most outlandish things from, and these are from famous pastors. So 
people have been sending me incredible, uh, whether they're articles, you know, that get written or doctrinal statements that, that you know, come out, uh, memorandums from denominations, but public statements from famous pastors. And this is the one I have to tell you, because I think you get such a kick out of it. There's a pastor named Tim Keller. He, he was a famous uh, yeah. Presbyterian minister in New York, and he's a author, often quoted author in Reformed Calvinist circles. So hit one of his major complaints about the current conversation with critical race is that it is utopian. <clears throat> oh, no. And that is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Because coming from people who live a utopian vision, right? (laughs) Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say Christianity might be the most utopian of any religion. And this whole idea of the kingdom come is so utopian. So it's funny that like through the centuries and even as recently as the 20th century, one of the major complaints that people had against Western Christianity is how utopian it is. So for that to be the reason that some white Christians or conservative Christians are not open to have this conversation about race is because it is utopian is one of the most bizarre upside down inside out things I've ever heard. You got to remember, you know, when everybody's a sinner and and the earth is sinful and everything has to be redeemed and then you know washed put through the wash so they can get to heaven and then heaven's the perfect utopian place right um you have this you know this bad earth in this in people in these bad bodies this is christianity basically um who uh can't no matter what they do they just can't do anything right because they're born sinful Right. But you have the potential to be this like to clean your spirit up so it can get to heaven. Right. And it gets redeemed and washed through through Jesus. And and that is, to me, the the message of evangelical Christianity. Mm. It's dualistic to the core. Um, We don't have good bodies. We don't have a good earth. The earth is not spiritual, you know, et cetera. Uh, And so and our bodies aren't spiritual. And so everything then is, you know, to, uh, to, to that branch of Christianity, uh, everything physical is evil and suspect. And if you try to improve it through like calling out racism or something like that, oh, you're messing, you're a utopian vision person, right? You're mm-hmm. messing with, you know, God's plan, which is for us just to be dirty old sinners in this dirty old world, pass through it and then get to heaven, which is the craziest thing on earth has nothing to do with anything Jesus said, mm. right? So um, Jesus was very much about, you know, uh, the, hey, the way you think it is in heaven, do that on earth, you know? Hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough trouble on its own. Take care of today, you know? Mm. And I also want to, uh, you know, made me think of um, this movement uh, that's uh, um, um, what we see happening in this country and the movement of Blaise Pascal quote. Uh, he said men, or, and I think what he meant by that is people, so I'll use people. People never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And oh my gosh, that is true. Talk about utopian vision. Look at, 
We got the Crusades. We got the Inquisition. We got Constantine. We've got, you know, uh, the the wars, the religious wars in Europe, you know, uh, all of this kind of stuff based on this crazy dualistic worldview, this this uh, perverted worldview that Christians have adopted. Yeah. And talk about, you know, being tainted by worldly philosophies. That is exactly what Christianity is. So, you know, these guys don't have a leg to stand on. It's amazing, isn't it? And they probably I, almost are all guys, I would imagine. I keep telling people, they say, well, critical race theory is not compatible with Christianity. I said, stop. Talk to me about your Christianity. So here's my three C's that I look for. Is it Constantinian? Did, is it Roman, right? Is it, is it based in that power, in that marriage of, of church and, and military power, right? Is it Constantinian? Second, is it colonial, <laughs> right? Yes. And then third, is, are the structures based in Christendom, that, that European model of church and state, it, those are my three C's. So if you say that it's not compatible, I would agree with you. No, it's not compatible with Constantinian colonial Christendom. Not at all. Yeah, whatever they're trying to defend, you know, good luck. That, that thing is dying out. People are seeing it for what it is. It's wearing thin. And, you know, they're going to go down fighting no matter what. But, you know, God yeah. bless them. I know you have to go dig a trench, but I just want to say one thing to our listeners uh, we're recording this on Friday morning. So the big news this morning as we are recording this is that the president of the United States has tested positive for COVID. And I know a lot of my friends are happy and celebrating this morning and experiencing some schadenfreude, some joy at somebody else's <laughs> misery. But I just want to say something. My favorite philosopher, Slowway Zizek, says, he warns us, be careful because the light at the end of the tunnel might be another oncoming train. And I just want yes, and I just want to warn people, listen, be careful what wow. you wish for. It could get worse. Because that is very apropos. That's a great thing. So yeah. if Trump doesn't get that sick from this, it's gonna he's gonna double down on the fact that it's not that bad. But if he does get really sick and Pence has to take over, that may change this election that people are growing quite confident that they're going to win. So I just want to say, be careful what you wish for. Don't take too much delight in this. It could get worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? I mean, this, this is, you know, every, every week there's another October surprise, right? Isn't that something? Unprecedented yeah. these times. I suspect there will be at least one or two more before this is all done. Wow. Randy, it has been great chatting with you. We will look forward to posting this and to have people listen to it and to let us know their thoughts. Please let us know what you want us to talk about in coming weeks, and we will see you on the interwebs. Yep. Great to catch up with you, everyone, and we want to hear from you. 